as we prepare for this final doxology that is Romans chapter 16, I want to remind you of something I said two weeks ago. That is, in John 4, verse 20, our Lord goes to a well and he meets a woman there, Samaritan woman. And she has some complaints. She she knows he's a religious guy. Like, you understand things about religion. Well, I've got some frustrations about worship, she says. She says this, Our fathers worshipped over in this mountain, Ebal and Gerizim. But you say that Mount Jerusalem is the place where we should go to worship. She says, I don't get it. There's so much controversy around how to worship. And Jesus does in John 4 what Paul is doing in Romans 16. Saying, It's not about how, it's more so about who. Honestly, when you get the who we worship right, the how kind of takes care of itself. There's there's not a lot of debate left about is this style or that style or this time of day or that time of day or this setting or that lighting or this place or that instrument. There's not a lot of room left for that once you get the who is it we worship right. So Jesus says, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking. Only time that I know of where God is seeking out something. The Father is seeking worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must do it in spirit and truth. Like today, there's a lot of question about What's appropriate worship? How do we worship accordingly? I would commend to you that right now we need to be gripped, captivated in this closing verse of Romans with the confession that we worship the one true, altogether wise God in Jesus forevermore. The author of this doxology is doing something that reminds me of Romans 11. This doxology is once again a confession that God has taken what was broken, negative, and turned it into positive. Paul expresses that same thing in chapter 11. At the conclusion of that section, he says, yes, this nation has rejected you, but you have turned that rebellion, that wickedness, that sin, into something for your glory. That's the reoccurring lesson from chapter 11 throughout the Bible. I think, I think Joshua says it really well in Genesis 50. Joshua is experiencing just the despair of sin all around him. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say Joshua. I meant to say Joseph. And Joseph says to his brothers, the things you have meant for my evil, God has meant them and turned them for my good. We should share in that confession. As we see, just see this with me, Bible opens with God creating worshipers and putting them in a garden. 
And because of their sin, they forfeit that. And God does a work more than we could ask or think. He doesn't just restore them to that. He does so much more. We're not just being redeemed back to the Garden of Eden. We're being redeemed to a garden where we can't fail. And so the title for my sermon is simply Doxology, the third part. And it's just going to be verse 27. If, let me just make this quick announcement. Parents are usually pretty good at this, but if we have any guests and you didn't see that, some of the parents have already taken their children to children's church. If your children want to go to a children's church uh, gathering this morning, they're welcome to be dismissed out this door and down the hallway. They have a class. You're welcome to go head off to class. Some of you already took responsibility to do that. Thank you. Here we stand, Romans 16. Let's look at verse 25 through 27. The word of the Lord says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. We'll talk a little bit about all of that in summary. But this is where we want to conclude our time in Romans. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This letter, these 16 chapters, have sometimes been called the gospel of God, the good news of God. Certainly the apostle felt that way when he started writing the letter, talking right away about Jesus Christ and the need people have for Jesus Christ. And the good news that is the announcement that Jesus saves sinners. Not just an announcement that Jesus is one option for sinners to be saved, but the reminder in Romans 1.16, Jesus is the only way for them to be saved. And that, listen close, the good news that sinners can be saved is not the end or the purpose for the news. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God to save. Verse 17, for in saving sinners, the righteousness of God is made known. This good news is that we have a God who can be worshipped because he's not wrong. He's not broken. He's not inadequate, not deficient. We have a God who can be worshipped because he is altogether right. You could spend every day of your life obsessed with adoring the God of the Bible and not waste a moment because it would be appropriate for you to give yourself to praising him whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. So this closing doxology, we've handled it in three parts. Praising God for his strengthening of sinners. That's right away in verse 25. Praising a God who, anecdotally, we see triune. When you read through the testament of God's saving people, you see that there is a father who has planned sinners to be redeemed. You see that there is a son who went to Calvary to accomplish that redemption. You see that there is a spirit 
who is applying the work of saving us. And so here the text says that God commanded it, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it, and it is producing the obedience of faith. Anecdotally, that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So today, I want to review verse 25 and verse 26, and then punctuate our time in verse 27. We have intentionally added two songs of response to the end of our service today. We're used to having just one, but it feels like it's fitting for us to conclude with two expressions of worship and glorifying God. Let's get started, though, in this first point that we saw two weeks ago, that our God is able to strengthen those who are in the bonds of sin. Right away, Paul says, to him who is able. Our worship of God is a response to who he truly is. It is not an obligation. We don't sign a worship contract. All right, now, you get to go to heaven, but you gotta pay your dues by worshiping God. Okay, seems like a fair trade. I'll put my time in worshiping God, and I get heaven in the end. That's not worship. Worship is truly cause and effect. That's what Jesus said in John 4. He says, listen, stop thinking about where you're obligated to go to worship and start thinking about worship that is according to revealed truth that is authentically expressed. That's spirit and truth, not capital S spirit, lowercase s. Our worship of God, we see true things of him and we authentically, naturally respond to that in praise. Now to him who is able to strengthen us. I want to remind you, oh wow, did we need strengthening. I mean, we were dead in our trespasses in sin. We sure needed strengthening. Romans chapter 3, if we look all the way back, we were reminded there in verse 10 that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. No one who could understand. No one who had the moral compass to seek after God. Everyone born of Adam had turned aside they had in fact become worth nothing. No one of them doing good, not even one, verse 12. But as we've walked through this gospel, we get to the fifth chapter. And there we read, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Oh, we were so weak. Impotent spiritually. Our IBC statement of faith confirms that. I taught the Membership Matters. What a great group of people come into Membership Matters. It's a really nice group of people getting to spend time with them. That's the kind of the introduction to Emmanuel. And there's this great group of people, uh, young and not so young who are attending Membership Matters. And I shared for them this this morning. Our statement of faith says, man is inwardly depraved and apart from a special work of grace, 
utterly lost, incapable of returning to God. This depravity that we have is radical and pervasive. It breaks, it extends to our body, our mind, our will, and our affections. That's the description of us needing to be strengthened. And then the gospel builds. We get to Romans chapter 6. In verse 6, we hear the word of the gospel say this, we know that our old self is crucified with him. Our old self is dead so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be the slaves of sinning. The prison, the dungeon. That is our depravity. We did not have the strength to free ourselves. Romans chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong now to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive. We've been strengthened, rescued, saved, so that we serve in a new way the Spirit and not the old way in the written code. And we go again another chapter and we walked through this and we saw Romans 8. We've been freed, but we walk with lament. There's a limp, it's our flesh. The Bible says all of creation, that's us as well, is subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God made it and then put it in a place of weakness. Now listen, I'm going to read this again. Creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creator put the created thing in a place of futility. Can you see that word, futility? See what it means? Like it doesn't work the way it should work. All of the things it wants to accomplish are a little inadequate. The creator put the created in futility, in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption. And not only the creation, but we too, ourselves. We have the Spirit. And now we groan inwardly as we wait. There's this thread that I want you to see. The garden had this inadequacy, this futility. It had been made that way. And we're groaning now not to go back to that futility. But we're praising God because in Christ, 
He's not redeemed us to a do-over. He's redeemed us to a better than we could ask or think. So we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of even our bodies. And we know, in verse 28, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, for those that are called according to his purpose. So now to him who strengthens us, we needed to be strengthened. We were weak, bound actually, chained in the dungeon of our own sinfulness. But we read in verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen us. To do far more abundantly than what we would ask. Get me out of this dungeon. So I can decide if I like dungeon life or not. He doesn't do No, no. If all I do is open the door and walk you outside of the dungeon, it won't be long. (laughs) You'll be back in the dungeon. He says, no, instead of taking you out of the dungeon and then putting you on the street in front of the dungeon, I'm going to take you out of the dungeon. I'm going to sit at my table like one of my kids, and we're going to eat together. That way we'll be in the same place, and you won't wind up slipping back into the dungeon. Now... To him who is able to strengthen. And then last week we saw this this great description of our really multifaceted God. Complex and wonderful God. Last week we saw the God who strengthens us does it in Trinitarian completion. It's wonderful. So we saw in verses 25 and 26, we saw that Jesus is the one who's been revealed, the one the prophets spoke about. The Old Testament testified of the Messiah. The New Testament testifies of the Messiah. Jesus, the eternal, co-equal God, has accomplished salvation. Why? Because the Father said so. Yeah, but all of the work at Calvary and all of the command of God would have had little effect on people dead in their sin in the dungeon. But, verse 26 says, that in this redemption... God's decree included bringing out the obedience of faith. (laughs) So you hear this? With every sinning, God makes for us a way of escape. A fork in the road. This way to salvation, eternal life. And this way to sin and death and judgment. Hmm. I think I'm going to get this wrong. (laughs) Right? With every way, we have a choice. But not so with dungeon life. The Spirit of God works in us to eliminate the fork in the road and produce in us the obedience of faith. Thank God for the Spirit of God. 
So we, we walked through that last week. Jesus. The revelation of the mystery that had been hidden. Jesus. The one who was going to save people from sin. And, and what was mysterious? What was mysterious? Is that it wasn't just going to be Adam and Eve. Okay, all right, the rest of you, I'm sorry for what happened, but Adam and Eve, I want to get you back to the place where you started, so I'm going to save you. And it wasn't just what came next. It wasn't just, all right, then I had this people, and that, that didn't go right. Um, so, man, that whole nation Israel thing, I thought they would do better. I mean, I, I communicated pretty clearly with them, and they failed. But I'm going to get, I'm going to get that nation of people back to salvation. That was not... There was a mystery. The mystery is that it was going to be people from every nation. It says that, verse 26. People from every nation. This, by the way, is the commission Jesus gave you and I. Go into all the world and make disciples from every nation. He doesn't say pick a country and get as many people as possible to be disciples. He says there should be people from every group who are being saved. And, listen, there are not. There are not. There is a growing number of people, groups, that are not being discipled. The number's not shrinking. The number's growing. And so people who could be gladly on the threshold of retirement say, we have to go to where that people is. I don't know about you, but I'm in my mid-40s and I cannot wait to retire. But I'm being challenged by soon-to-be retirees who say, let's do this instead. So the mystery, Jesus is saving people all nations. Mysterious. But Romans had already talked about the mystery. Romans eleven twenty five. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of a mystery. There has been a partial hardening that has come upon Israel until the full number of Gentiles will come in. Paul had already talked about the mystery back in 11. The mystery had been prophesied in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. We read this morning the mystery. Those who were far off have been brought near. Those who were really near have been brought in. Jesus did this. The Father commanded that Jesus do this. The Father commands redemption of the nations. Now, This came up a couple times this past week. uh, Listen really closely because I mentioned something last week in assumption that there was a familiarity with it and I need to explain it today. So uh, last night in my small group, uh, Monday night in another small group, and I think Wednesday night in in, uh, Wednesday night prayer and Bible study, there was a question about what is the covenant of redemption? Like the Bible says here in verse 25 and 26 that God commanded, God commanded redemption. To happen. The father comes out of the a loving father. What is the covenant of redemption? 
Well, there are several verses, and I looked at them last week. I'm going to just refer to them really quickly right now. Ephesians 1.4, for example, says, You chose them before the foundation of the world. So something was determined before the world was founded. Ephesians 3, a little bit later, says, All these things are working according to your eternal purpose that is being realized in Christ Jesus. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I have come to accomplish the work you gave me while I was with you in heaven. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the audience who had just cried out for Jesus' crucifixion. And, Jesus, and Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. So we talk about this promise to redeem It's a promise that we see described certain places in the Bible of events that took place before recorded history. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreeing together that each of them would give of themselves to redeem, to buy back those worshipers that would be created. So let me say it. I think it'll be helpful, but let me say it to the kids. All right, kids? I have a burden to say this to you because I didn't understand this when I was little. Okay, kids? Here we go. You will hear over and over and over that Jesus Christ went to the cross to save you. And that is so true. But sometimes you might not notice that we're also saying more than that. We're saying that it wasn't just Jesus who went to the cross to save you. It was God who loved you and made a plan for you to be saved. That Jesus did come in perfection and accomplish it. He he won it for you. Jesus did it. He wins your salvation. But, kids, I want you to know, too, that all of that being true wouldn't mean anything to me if the Spirit hadn't done it in me. We, we looked this morning, uh, who, who helped me with that? Uh, Mike, you helped me with that. At 1 Corinthians, what do you think, were we in 4? 2? 2, thank you. Um, these things would be foolishness to us. The whole, the whole story of the gospel would be, we would think it was dumb. Because it's not understood by the flesh but it's only spiritually discerned. So kids, here's what I want you to know. I want to move away from this point, but I want you to know that yes, Jesus did stand in our place and die for our sin. But the Father gave of himself in sending the Son. And the Spirit works in us to help us understand the gospel. It could not be understood, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have worked it in us. So I just want all the kids to know because I think there's this accident that could happen where, where God demands a judgment, but then Jesus comes up and goes, oh, I'll save them from, from God's anger. And I just, I just don't want any of our kids to think that, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all to be praised. So let's get into what we are finishing Romans with today. Verse 27. Paul returns to what he started. (laughs) I'm thankful Paul's mind works a little bit like some of ours because 
he says something, then gets into this weird runoff parenthetical statement, and then he eventually gets back where he's going, and you're all sitting here thinking, I know someone like that. (laughs) He says this. Look at verse 25. He says, now to him who's able to strengthen you. And then he, he breaks off into like this parentheses. And he doesn't return to it until verse 27. Now to him. He doesn't say who he is until right now. The only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. The one who is able is the only wise God. When Paul refers to the wisdom of God, it's like he said back in chapter 11, verse 33. God has displayed his wisdom in laying out a plan to redeem sinners that surpasses our comprehension. It is so magnificent. Like, if if you were trying to save as many people from a sinking ship as possible, would would you ever have the instinct to say, well, the best way to do that is save half of them? Or three quarters of them, or a quarter of them, or an eighth of them. There's going to have to be some loss in order to bring about the best result of salvation. We could not have articulated the plan to redeem in a way that's as fruitful as God has. The wisdom of God in the plan of salvation, in salvation history. The first testament of scripture, like I mentioned a minute ago, the old testament we sometimes call it, the first testament to this redemption plan includes a story about a character named Adam and Eve. And they failed. They really did fail, right? They had everything there. All this stuff you have, it's for you. Just don't do that. Satan comes and says, basically, if I can just summarize, says, you don't want to be told what to do, do you? No. I want to be like the one who tells people what to do. Okay. Just eat this. And they fail. Both of them. And then God says, okay, I'll reveal myself uniquely to this group of people. I'll give them my writings and my prophets. There'll be messengers from me that'll come. Angels, in fact, are going to come and And I'm going to walk with these people in a really special way. And the testament is failure. I mean, they they just don't get it. Sometimes they're called stiff-necked people. They're they're hard-hearted. And the first testament describes all of these entities that can't save. And the First Testament testifies anticipation. And the Second Testament says the same thing, but from the perspective of exaltation. Adam couldn't. Who can? Israel couldn't. Who can? And the New Testament says, Jesus can. Right? The Testaments say the same thing. But the first one tells you about all the ways to fail and points to, right, don't, don't, don't get me wrong, 
Jesus is being preached in all of that failure. But the new one says, look at who never fails. Let me explain it in a way that maybe in the Old Testament you were not seeing. You thought it was mysterious. Let me explain it. The culmination of the glory of God is in Jesus Christ. He says, now to him be glory through Jesus Christ. It's how he started the book. Go back to one, Romans 1. We've got to go a little quick here now. So if your attention span is growing thin, just take that deep breath and, and bear with me. I'm going to finish this, okay? Um, or we can just pick it up here next week. No, I'm going to finish this. Romans 1, this is how he starts. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart by the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets. There it is. The Old Testament said it concerning his son, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit and holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all of the nations. That's where he started. Jesus is glorifying God to the nations. It's not just where Paul started. It's where the Bible started. The glory of God is not one passing comment in Scripture. The glory of God is what the Bible's about. Someone ever asked you, what's the Bible about? Well, Jesus. That's true. But what's Jesus about? The glory of God. It is the thesis of the Bible. It is the conclusion of the Bible. Listen as I read from Timothy Pierce. Timothy Pierce wrote a great book. Uh, It's called Enthroned on Our Praise. It's about Old Testament uh, uh, worship. Okay, And it's this. The biblical record of Genesis 1 through 11 paints the grandeur of God with colors unimagined, introduces humanity to a God who's not only transcendent, but imminent. A God who's not only powerful, but personal. A God who's not only austere, but relational. It is the wonder of a God who overwhelms our categories and yet be a part of our formulations in a meaningful way as the starting point of all of our worship. Overwhelms our categories yet shapes the start of our worship. Revelation is the summary of the glory of God. Revelation, listen, friends, just, I don't mean to poke fun at anything, but Revelation is not a story about trying to figure out, like, days and weeks and times and years. You're just missing the point of Revelation. Revelation is the description to the church that everything God said would happen, he's going to make sure happens. Like, that's revelation, okay? It's not like how John describes a helicopter. It's not the book of Revelation. 
Revelation means more than that. What God said is going to happen. That's worth writing about. Revelation is the account of God's faithfulness and glorious inauguration of everlasting glory. What we're reading here in verse 27 prompted the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was lit by the book of Romans. It could not go unaddressed that this was being defamed, the gospel of God. This promotion of some sort of deism. God's out there with good intentions for you. But as long as you work hard, you can have his gifts. Protestant Reformation says we cannot tolerate that any longer. That message that you can buy forgiveness or work hard for forgiveness is intolerable because it defames the glory of God. The Protestant Reformation launches out of prompting of God from the book of Romans. One of the characters in the Reformation is a man named William Tyndale. And I want to help close our time with the way he writes at the close of his notes on the book of Romans. William Tyndale writes this at the end of his commentary on Romans. I want to hear it and I want us to hear it. Now go, reader, and according to the order of Paul's writing, even so do it. Now go, reader. He says, first, behold yourself diligently in the law of God and see your damnation. Then, turn your eyes wholly to Christ and see exceeding mercy of the kind and loving Father. Thirdly, remember that Christ did not make this atonement, that we would again anger God, but that we now be new creation, living in new life. End quote. This doxology is so amazing because it's not describing that God has done a work of getting us back to square one. God has done a work of saving us from ever going back to square one and repeating all of our mistakes over again. God's salvation of us is so radical that it guarantees salvation to the uttermost. No part being undone. Never in us any wanting or need for more salvation. Jonathan Edwards said, God glorifies himself in two ways. 
by appearing to our understanding and our hearts and in our rejoicing in what has appeared to us. God is glorified not only in his glory being seen, but in his glory being celebrated. Rejoicing in his glory. Satan despised the creation that he saw. What had God made? What was Satan so angry about? God had created worshipers to delight in him. And somehow, at some level, that prompted a despair in Satan. An anger. A jealousy. I think that we see described in the fall of Satan that ultimately it was over a contention with who creation would focus on, who creation would adore. And Satan thought, I'll ruin it. I'll go to the first people you made, and I'll ruin them, and then everyone that comes from them will be ruined too. And God does above what we might have thought made sense. Just get it back to the garden. We won't eat that tree again. We learned a lesson. He says, no, I'm not going to take you back there. I'm going to do more. I'm going to make sure that there's never chance again for you to be lost. Now to him who's able, to him be glory. What Satan meant for evil, God has meant for good. And to him be glory in Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, it's been a good gift from you to know and to have to study this revelation. I pray that we would be careful and humble in the stewardship of it that we would not be people who have acquired information or knowledge, but that we would be radically transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would do the work of a priest in our reasonable worship of you, being like living sacrifices on the altar of your praise. Make us to long for nothing more and the worship of you through Jesus Christ. And all the church said...